As I said when I ran for president, no one should be in jail just for using or possessing marijuana. It's already legal in many states. And criminal records for marijuana possession have led to needless barriers to employment, to housing, to educational opportunities. And that's before you address the racial disparities around who suffers the consequences. Welcome to 10 Minutes on Democracy. I'm Jason Franklin, Senior Advisor at One for Democracy, and today is Tuesday, October 11th. That clip was from President Joe Biden's comments on Thursday when he issued a mass pardon for federal marijuana possession convictions. President Biden's mass pardon and his push to review marijuana status under federal law is potentially the biggest shift in federal marijuana policy in more than half a century and significant coming from Biden, who was a tough on drugs senator. He's trying to signal at this point a paradigm shift and a policy shift at the White House in the next two years, fulfill another campaign promise, as he referenced in that clip, and of course, build momentum with progressives and younger voters headed into the midterms. Now, it should be noted that blanket pardons are rarely used. The two most recent examples were in the 70s. President Ford issued blanket amnesty in 74 to Vietnam War deserters, and Carter granted unconditional pardons to hundreds of thousands of Vietnam War draft dodgers in 77. So Biden's action is limited to people with federal convictions for simple possession of marijuana, which senior administration officials say will affect about 6,500 people, although they also were quick to point out that no one is in federal prison solely for simple possession of marijuana. The vast majority of people who've been negatively affected by federal marijuana enforcement are those who are convicted of more serious crimes, distribution, trafficking. The only people locked up solely for marijuana possession were convicted at the state level. And while Biden's executive order calls on governors to issue pardons for state marijuana possession, he has no authority to compel them to act. Really, when we think about this, it's about shifting the trajectory of federal enforcement of marijuana law. It will get sent now to the HHS, which will then send it to the FDA and DEA for rulemaking. There's concerns from the cannabis industry about whether they reschedule marijuana from a Schedule 1 to a Schedule 2 or 3 substance versus completely decriminalize it. But that will take months or years to go. The other question, of course, is much more immediate. What will be its implications for the midterms? And it's hard to tell how big an impact this action from the Biden administration will be. But, of course, in races all over the country that hinge on very small margins, any actions in the final 30 days before a midterm can be critical. Another thing to talk about related to midterms has been some interesting kind of reporting coming out the last few days about unusual campaigners and unusual voices, just given the nature of the political moment we're in. Two that I wanted to lift up. One is a bunch of reporting coming out of Pennsylvania, where the medical sector is campaigning in unprecedented ways. Motivated by abortion, concerns about their profession, reporting coming out about doctors, residents, med students, all really stepping up and campaigning almost exclusively alongside Democrats about how the attempt to prohibit abortion could damage one of the largest and most recession-proof pieces of the Pennsylvania economy. So the medical community actually is the fourth largest job sector in the state of Pennsylvania, 400,000 people. And previously, doctors and medical organizations have been really hesitant to wade into politics. They've generally maintained good relationships, both with Democratic governors and the Republican legislature. But they're coming out much more explicitly against the Republican 
governor and Senate campaigns in a way that's really politicizing the practice of medicine because of the Dobbs decision. We're seeing similar examples around the country. Pennsylvania is just the most acute and specific. It's getting lifted up recently. Another is coming actually out of a surprising place, Oklahoma. So two things in Oklahoma. One was actually a really surprising poll. Sooner Poll, which is a local Oklahoma firm, dropped some very startling numbers on Saturday when they found Democrat Joy Hoffmeister leading Republican Governor Kevin Stitt, 47-43. Now, that's a month ago they gave Stitt, the Republican, a 44-43 edge. So the polls have been tightening. This is the first poll showing Hoffmeister in the lead. And of course, one poll can always be an exception or an outlier. So not to take too much with this, but it's been a very intense competition in a very dark red state. And of course, Hoffmeister, who was a Republican, now Democrat, who serves as the superintendent of public instruction, would need almost everything to go right in order to pull off an upset. Also, she's continuing a pattern seeing all over the country. She's radically outspending her Republican counterpart. So in this race, Inside Elections report, she's outspent Stitt's forces six to one and that she's aired 77% of all the commercials that have run in this race from September 19th to October 2nd. Now, whether TV spending will have as big of an impact remains to be seen, but this type of disproportionate spending and TV ads are unusual. The other thing, though, I mentioned unusual voices is that this week, the leaders of Oklahoma's five largest indigenous tribes, the Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Muskegee, and Seminole, all announced jointly that they were endorsing her. And this is in a state where Native Americans make up 16% of the population. It's the first time that the five leaders of these tribes have jointly endorsed a candidate speaks to kind of how significant this race is and especially the fact that it's gotten so close that many see this as them taking the public stance of endorsing hoping to push this close election over the edge but we're seeing all over the country more and more reporting and you're going to see it from now until november 8th about all of the races tightening we expected to see races tightening everyone who said oh look this person's ahead it's no surprise Races always tighten as we get closer to an election, as more people get informed, as all those public opinion polls go from showing 35 to 40 percent with a big chunk of undecideds, undecided voters start to make up their mind and they tend to split and you tend to see races tighten. But we're going to have to see what happens and we'll keep talking about that in the next few weeks. Last thing I want to talk about today, though, is what happens after November 8th. In particular, right now, I want to talk about the congressional session, the lame duck congressional session. It's been a bunch of new reporting and conversations coming up in the last couple of weeks about how this year's lame duck is shaping up to be one of the busiest and most intense in the last decade. You know, if Democrats lose the Senate, they'll face enormous pressure to run as many judicial nominees as possible for lifetime appointments before the end of the session. If House Democrats hold their majority, which is not likely at this point, there may be uh, less of a crush on legislation because they're going to have more years to be able to push through things. On the flip side, if Republicans do a complete takeover of both the House and Senate, there's going to be very little that moves forward, or they may move some things forward so they can have kind of clear decks ahead of 23, back and forth debates between the parts of the Republican caucus about 
which way they'd go. But just to think about what's coming up, you've got the funding deadline on December 16th to keep the government funded. You've got the annual defense bill, which always sucks up a lot of oxygen and must be passed. And you've got a bunch of other measures, hurricane relief money, military aid for Ukraine, water resources bill, renewal for flood insurance, which is particularly big after Ian, annual extensions of different targeted tax breaks. Democrats are going to push again for more COVID and monkeypox aid, which hasn't happened. They're going to try to revive the expired child tax credit. Republicans are going to want to bring back some of the tax benefits for businesses that are set to expire. You've also got things that are stalled out between the House and Senate. So the House passed a same-sex marriage bill, and Schumer is looking to bring it to the Senate after the election. You know, the Senate stalled out on their energy permitting, which is a priority for Senator Manchin, and it was stripped out of the last government funding bill. But Manchin claims that Mitch McConnell has agreed to pass it after the midterms. Whether that actually happens remains to be seen. And of course, both the House and the Senate both passed reforms to the Electoral Count Act, which governs how is a presidential election counted and ensures the peaceful transfer of power. But now they have to negotiate the differences between their two bills, which will be very, very sticky. There are a lot of predictions for lowered partisanship after the midterms, but frankly, that's often the prediction. And in these hyper-partisan times, I would say that it's really hard to know for certain, and I'm a little skeptical that we're all of a sudden going to see a return to bipartisanship after the elections passed. The other thing just to flag is, of course, I expect that we'll see a ramp up around the January 6th investigation after the election and before, but especially after, especially if the Democrats lose their majority. If they do, they know that their investigation will end the minute that you turn over power. So they're going to be pushing to get as much out into the public eye as possible and move things forward. You also saw last week, Jeremy Bertino, a North Carolina leader of the Proud Boys, pled guilty to seditious conspiracy. He's the first member of the Proud Boys to plead guilty to that charge stemming from the January 6th attack. But there's hundreds of other cases moving forward, and I expect a lot more attention will be focused there soon. We also know that, you know, I think there'll be similarly more movement or at least more press coverage on various Trump investigations, which is always, again, likely to intensify because the midterm election news cycle will die down and political reporters will be looking for new or revived storylines to fill their reporting. So if you've been wondering, why haven't we heard as much around January 6th? Why haven't we heard as much around Mar-a-Lago and the Trump investigations? One is that they haven't been a core part of the midterm attacks. It hasn't been in the ads the same way that abortion or inflation crime have been. But also, there's been so much else filling those reports as the midterms pass, those come back into the foreground. So a little bit of what to be looking for beyond November 8th. But right now, that's all for this week's review of developments in American democracy. I'm Jason Franklin, and I look forward to talking with you again next week on 10 Minutes on Democracy. Until then, take care.